Is this it? Are we on the new machine? Uh, yes, we are. Back to Apple. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still figuring a few things out, like USB and dongles and various things of that nature. Um, oh yeah, welcome to Dongle Town. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm now in Dongle Town. I'm not sure how I feel about Dongle Town. It sucks. I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, to be real with you, though, I mean, I, I, I'm intending on going wireless with everything anyway. So in the long run, I don't think it'll be that big a deal. Um, just for specific things like recording, for example, you can't go wireless yet because microphones have latency. I don't know if they'll ever even be able to solve that latency problem. That's a yeah, pretty huge engineering. I mean, they, I do know people who do record on wireless mics, though, and I mean, it's annoying, but they make it work. Ugh, I don't even want to hear what that sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. But you know, I, I've, even though Dongle Town does suck, um, in reality, it makes sense. It's a laptop. Yeah, you know what I mean, like it's it's a portable device, so you know, like if the desktops required dongles, then that would be really stupid. <laughs> I mean, beyond that, too, let's let's just be real about this for a second. Oh, for every for anybody who doesn't know, by the way, um, my car got broken into, all my stuff got stolen, so I used it as an opportunity to replace my old crappy stuff with new better stuff. Um, and and your old crappy the- stuff was a PC. Yeah, my old crappy stuff was a Surface Pro. Um, and don't get me wrong, all you PC lovers out there, um, there are certain things that PCs are better for. Uh, mind you, I can't think of many. But I got a MacBook Pro. Um, and I had a MacBook Pro for, God, almost seven years uh, previous to the my Surface Pro that, that rocked all the way up until I got my Surface. And now I have a brand new MacBook. And this thing is a screaming machine. I mean, it's just so awesome. Yeah, I think I I kind of I I I made the the mistake of well I shouldn't say made the mistake I had to my last computer died, but I got mine on the year before they made the MacBook Pros awesome again. Mm-hmm. So I mean, mine doesn't suck, but it's nowhere near as awesome as the ones they're making now. Oh, let me tell you, this thing is such a step above in so many ways. Um, not only that, but for a MacBook Pro, I mean, this thing is the size of the old MacBook Air. So mm-hmm. it's the power it's the power of a MacBook Pro in the size of a MacBook Air. And, and the level of convenience and, and, and just portability is just shocking. Like my, to, to give people like some perspective, like my current work PC um, is a seven, I don't know why they gave out 17 inch laptops. Jesus. But it, yeah. Why? <laughs> what is, that defeats the purpose of portability. Um, so first of all, it weighs six and a half pounds. That's like a Ninja uh, Turtle shell. Oh, it's huge. I mean, the thing is a monster. I mean, you know what? Just, just strap that thing on your back with like rubber bands. Oh, dude, for the sake of comparison, I'm totally taking pictures of them side by side. <laughs> just to show the enormity of this thing. It's like the Battlestar Galactica. Um, At least you can go sledding down a hill if there's ever an avalanche. Yeah, or if I have an intruder in my house, I can use it to beat them to death. <laughs> and it would still um, work. <laughs> yeah, and it would still totally work. Um, so I'll give it that. Like during the zombie apocalypse, it's probably a more useful machine for other reasons than being a computer. Yeah, when you um, don't need porn as much. Yeah, exactly. When I need a table, you know, a chair. There's <laughs> <laughs> 101 ways to use your PC that's not being used as a computer. A ferret, teepee. 
<laughs> I mean, considering it's 17 inches, I could probably use it as like a, a, a makeshift umbrella. Yeah. Uh, and for people who watch uh, Curse of Oak Island, it would work really well as a box drain, triangular shaped box drain. And yeah, so, so my, Mac, my MacBook weighs literally less than half of that. And it is 10 times the computer. <laughs> I mean, it's out of control. Do you have an external, do you have an external monitor with that? I do, but I don't ever use it. I mean, I'm, mm. I literally just walk around my house with my, Mac, my MacBook because it's so light. Yeah. Um, but the, the one nice thing that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be, back, to be back into is the ecosystem. All yep. of my devices work together. Holy crap, that is so convenient. And that's, uh, you know, like you said, like uh, people out there love their PCs. They love their PCs. I, as far as hardware went, I had no complaints when I had the Surface Pro. I had the 4, I think. Um, yep. Hardware-wise, that thing was incredible. Software wise, it there you go either way. It wasn't awful. It's just there were so many bugs every time. But that was when that Windows version was still new. So maybe it's better. I don't know. But the one thing that I could never get over was all of the time that I wasted. You and I talked about in this in text message. Just being able to sit on this computer while we're doing this now, and if I get a text message from you about something during the show. That uh, you know, like uh, you know, my my bathroom's on fire right now. <laughs> I'll be right back or something. <laughs> uh, it, it just pops up on my screen. The fact that my text message and my computer are connected—that little tiny thing—saves me hours every week. And that, for me, more than anything, is why I stick with Apple. Is the ecosystem? Is that you know even the continuity too? You know, you open something on my phone, and I'm like, I need to look at this on the screen, and just boom, come over here and open the same thing. I will say though that one drawback, and this is purely me just getting used to it, um, I almost lost my phone today <laughs> because <laughs> because I didn't need it. You know, like I was sitting there with my laptop, and I I. I put my phone on a kitchen counter and didn't know where the heck it was for like a good 20 minutes because I, I, I hadn't touched it in three hours. That's where the find my thing on the Apple Watch comes in really handy. Ecosystem once again. Oh yeah, absolutely. I use that at least once a day. <laughs> unfortunately, my, my Apple Watch wasn't charged. Mm. So I had to wait for it to charge before I could ping it. Well, you know, that's, that's funny because this kind of plays into um, one of the things I was going to tell you about today. We talked about it a little bit um, but the, one of the things that I've been doing, and we'll go into more detail because I want to talk a little bit more about what you're talking about. But one of the things that I've been doing more is using the phone and all of the other stuff less and using the computer as, you know, like the 1980s. We've talked about it many times before. This 1980s idea, the equivalent of what a computer was. It was a place that you sat down. It was a terminal and you went there when you had to do things. You got to check your email sit at the computer and I turn the computer off now and I turn it back on when I want to use it. And I'm, I'm trying to get myself back into that mindset of not using the phone for those things. Well, not only that, here's the funny fringe benefit. I mean, I've only been using this thing for like a day and a half, so it's not like I've had it a ton of time. But just in the day and a half that I've used it, um, because it's a computer, um, I don't get as distracted by all of the other billions of notifications and hundred other apps that are available to me on my phone, which is crazy. Like it's, it's weird how much uh, it's, you don't realize how much of that stuff has invaded your life until you don't have to have access to it all the time. Well, I, I guarantee you that at least a small percentage of everybody in the world's anxiety comes from that alone. 
Oh yeah, there are studies on that. I, I forget where I saw that. We should probably before I say things like that, I should probably know what the study is. We'll make it uh, up. Four point three percent. No, but there's there's a direct correlation to people's stress and anxiety levels and how much they're on their phones. Well, it goes back to that that multitasking and sing, and single tasking thing. You know, like multitasking isn't really a thing. Yeah, and they they've done studies. This I do remember. They say that uh, when one little thing that takes somebody off track. One little notification, one little distraction, it takes 15 minutes for them to get back into the mindset that they were when that distraction happened. Yeah, I remember that. We've talked about that actually on, on a number of episodes now. So, I mean, and like my on my computer, I have no notification. I have every single notification turned off. I don't give a shit if the world is blowing up. If I'm looking at my computer, go to my phone. <laughs> I've sure. got the watch, you know, like if the notification, if it's important, it'll go to my watch. I don't need it popping up on the screen where I'm trying to focus on something. It, I mean, it's, it's really nice to just get that back where you're like, this is what I'm doing. And I try to, you know, uh, maximize app. I mean, you know, maximize them to the full window now. Sure. So I'm not seeing the backdrop anymore. It's just like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So, so basically you're reclaiming your, your control over your device. Hmm. In so many more ways, um, you know, like we mentioned earlier in the week when we were chatting, I've I've removed all of social media off my phone now, and it's it, none. Even like I, I I was cheating a little bit, like I had <laughs> taken Twitter and I'd taken Facebook off, but I was signed in in Safari, mobile Safari, so I could sneak into the the browser. So all <laughs> I did was I set up an extra step. I signed myself out of those, and because I have two th- two step authentic uh, authentication. Authentication. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, my tongue is not working apparently. Um, since I have two steps set up, it's that one extra problem where I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it. I don't care that much. Yeah, sure. And for my sanity, just it's it's been about a week. I think I did it Friday, last Friday. Just that one thing has transformed my day. Huh. Literally transformed my day. And so, so- so yeah, I, I was, you're probably going to answer this question, but can you describe a before and an after on it? Um, what do you with before and after of what necessarily? Like what, like what your day used to look like versus what your day looks like now? Um, sure. So basically, when I get up, you know, now I have the dog, so I have the dog responsibility. I, I wake up, and he likes to sleep kind of at the foot of the bed. He's allowed to sleep wherever, but that's just where he likes to sleep. And I'll look over and he'll look at me and I'm like, okay, he's awake. He's like, come here. And then he'll, he, he stretches out and kind of warms his way to the top of the bed. And we snuggle a little bit and I, I talk to him and I, you know, tell him good morning and all that. Then we get up and uh, I go and I take him out to the bathroom. He goes to the bathroom while he's going to the bathroom. Um, I have this sugar-free um, sports drink that's like for hydration. Um, that's the first thing I drink. So I hydrate my body first thing in the morning while the dogs go in the bathroom. And then uh, I grab my Kindle. We go in the bathroom. <laughs> I read a couple pages while I'm on the can. <laughs> and then uh, he lays down. I take a shower. We come out and uh, I brush my teeth, obviously. Come out, get dressed. And then um, we'll lay on the bed. Oh, sorry. I feed him, of course. He would never let me forget that. I feed him. And I've got him the slow feeder, so now it takes him like five minutes to eat. And then uh, I'll lay down on, the, lay back on the bed, and I'll grab my iPad, 
and I'll flip over and I'll, I'll go to my email app and I'll look and see if there's anything I need to know. And then, you know, usually there's a couple things I got to know. Okay, that's what I need to know for the day. Clear out my email app real quick. And then um, I'll open Feedly, look at a few, one or two little um, blogs for the day, whatever. Um, just, I don't usually read them then, but I'll like, okay, I'll save this for the afternoon. I just kind of look through if there's anything interesting. Then I have uh, Stoop, which is an, e- uh, an email um, newsletter app. So you don't have everything sent to your, your actual email. It's a separate app just for newsletters. And I'm um, following a couple of interesting newsletters. So I'll go over there and I'll read a couple of those, whatever comes in for the day. And then uh, I'll get up and uh, the dog and I will go for a walk over to the coffee shop. And then uh, I'll read for a little bit. And I come home and uh, he'll take a nap <laughs> and I'll do a little <laughs> bit of work. Usually work on something for podcasts or for the website. And then... Uh, somewhere around there and then comes dinner and then just kind of it's it's literally like my phone used to be part of my day and i'm noticing this now where i don't need to continue the rest of the day but um in my description of that i didn't mention my phone once yeah crazy and, and so what i'm try, I, I haven't done this every night but what i've been trying to do is once i sit down you know i've said before at 10 o'clock i like to sit down and turn on the tv turn my phone off uh-huh. literally turn it off so that I can't grab it and get a quick fix. It's off. And just, that's it. And just those those little things, oh my God, you don't realize how, you know, we were talking about how notifications have impeded into our lives. You don't realize how that quick fix of grabbing this and looking at something fucking inane and stupid that gives no value to your life. Sorry, that's what Facebook and Twitter are. I don't care about it. The, the people are valuable, but looking at the little minuscule things that people are posting, it's not important. It really sure. isn't. In, uh, I've gone through this phase before, you know, where I've, I've realized, and I think that I've slowly been rejecting it all along, and then I'm finally ready to just like, you know, like I went in and I took my name off of all the accounts. So it just says "Holy Fool." None of them say "Chat" anymore. I took my picture off of all of them. I went through all of my all of my social medias and deleted every personal thing that I ever posted. <laughs> wow! And that took a day. Yeah, but that's I don't. I recommend. I'm going to put in the show notes, and I recommend people listen to this. Obviously, this is this is very controversial because you know social media is so popular and all of this. Um, you know, it's so much of a part of our lives and it's the world and this is the future. I kind of think it's bullshit. I don't think that it is the future. Um, but there's an interview with, excuse me, Jaron Lanier, um, who is like one of the creators of virtual reality. He's a, he's hilarious. You got to listen to him. He's just like full of life. Um, but he wrote a book, I don't know, about half a year ago, maybe, called uh, 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media. And in this interview, he, he's, he's promoting another book, but he talks a little bit about this. And between that and So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm done. And it, I mean, his, his, his perspective is very interesting. I don't want to ruin it because I want people to actually listen to it. But one of the things that he says is the main reason that social media is broken is because it, the way that it's incentivized. It is because it's free and because of all of these other things. It's incentivized 
for outrage. It's incentivized for the worst things possible to happen. Nobody's intending that for it to happen, but the way that it works makes those things happen. It makes those things possible. And he's actually one of the things he's, he has, he's never had a social media account, but one of the things he says in, in it, um, I think it's in this interview. You'll have to forgive me if it isn't because I listened to like seven interviews with him because I enjoyed this one so much. I went and found every other podcast he'd been on. Of course um, he did. But he basically he says that uh, what he hopes is that we're at the rough edge that actually what becomes social media and what is social media in 10 years, we will look at back at what it is now and go, Oh my God, I can't believe we survived through that. That was sure. ridiculous. And what he looked and what's really interesting when you see him, he's, he's like, he's got dreadlocks. Like he's a, <laughs> um, he, he looks like a guy that would live in Santa Cruz or Berkeley. And he, he plays uh, like he has over a thousand um, instruments from all around the world. Um, He's just, he's a very, you'd look at him and go, that dude's liberal, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a stereotypical um, Santa Cruz left like, person, even though he's not like from Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you, that's what you'll think looking at him, right? But his suggestion, he says, if you want to fix social media, he actually, he's like, you have to, the market is the way that you fix social media. And he actually says something you and I have been talking about forever. If you want to fix social media, make people pay for it. Oh, yeah. Because then the incentive is different. Yeah, All totally. of the incentives change. And the expectations uh, change and the, the amount of, of... Yeah, completely. I mean, we, the could, data we, could collection. Talk, we could literally talk about that for a week. <laughs> He's, I'm going to read that book. I bought the book, um, 10 Reasons to Lead Your Social Media. Um, I'm going to read it. We could talk about it after I read it. Um, and we'll get your. I want to get your responses on some of his thoughts. But one thing I do wanted to, I wanted you to, to hear that I thought you would enjoy, is he says something in one of the interviews. He says, "Utopian thinking," and this is not a direct quote because I didn't write it down. But utopian thinking is the path to destruction. Huh. And basically, what he says is he said what he wants in the future. He says, "I want a future that's free, but mildly uncomfortable." He says, when you try to perfect the world, when you try to create your utopia, that's when you create hell. And he's totally right. That's 1984, exactly. Sure. Interesting. And it takes me back to the conversation we had about Ready Player One, where you said you wouldn't be more interested in that dystopian future, what got them there, and all of that. And it made me wonder. So I have a question for you. Are you sure it's a dystopian future in Ready Player One? Or are we just seeing the story of one person who lives in poverty? We actually didn't yeah. see the rest of the world. And actually, uh, if you're talking about some of the, the corporate bigwigs in that environment, they they were they looked like they were living just fine. Right, especially the main villain, right? Yeah, it was it was more Slumdog Millionaire when I was thinking about it, um, because I, I for some reason I I thought about it too um, after our last episode. And yeah, I, I I think I just assumed that because I feel like I feel like I wanted to associate it, it to associate the hero's struggle into it. You know what I mean? And I wanted to go as low as as possible um, in the environment in order to make the journey more profound in my mind. But yeah, mm-hmm. I made that assumption. I totally made that assumption. And you know what's in, what's interesting is in first of all, we, <laughs> we both have to give that movie a lot of credit because we both thought about it a lot more. Um, I think there's a lot of and actually maybe even going back to the book. I haven't read the book, but um, a lot of interesting things in there that maybe I didn't even realize that I would think about later. But um, I can't remember the guy, the you know the guy that created the um, 
What's it called? The oh, sprawl? Yeah. Is it called yeah. the sprawl? Uh, I don't remember. Oh man. Oasis, the Oasis. The Oasis. There you go. There you the go. The sprawl is that um uh <laughs> that album from uh yeah. I'm not pulling up names today. Yeah, What's that band? <laughs> well, I've, I've only I've literally only, this is gonna be a crazy episode because I've I've only slept like three hours. Um and I just woke up from a nap. <laughs> and you just woke up from a nap. Oh wow, weird irony there. Um so we're both in the same state on the opposite ends of the same equation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But the uh, whatever the guy's name is who creates the oasis in that story, yep. Yep. Um, to some degree, like he he's there's mild bit of nods towards you know like Bill Gates and uh, um, towards Steve Jobs maybe even though like he's like more hippie than Steve Jobs, yep. maybe more Wozniak. Um, but I'm pretty sure I have no basis for this. I'm pretty sure he's actually based on Jaron Lanier. Huh. I'm pretty sure. Because now that I know enough about him and thinking back to that movie, I'm like, oh, yeah. Because, I mean, he, he talks a lot about, I mean, he loves VR, but he's like, he's like, but, you know, you can't live in VR. He says, you have to turn it off and live in the real world. All the stuff that's said in that movie. And it, it's this guy's, I mean, it's been his perspective all along. Sure. So I'm pretty sure it's based on him. So a cautionary tale wrapped in social allegory kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. I'm actually, I don't know what the chances are, but I'm going to work really hard to try to get him on Creative Minds because I just want to talk to that dude. Man, I really, I really wish more of that was in the actual movie. I feel like that would have made the movie matter a lot more to me instead of the chase itself. You know, like I didn't care about the chase so much. Um, yeah, but it wouldn't have sold. Yeah, no, I get it. And I we're mean, talking about Spielberg. Yeah, it's not like I don't understand the, the reason why it was what it was. I just wish there was a little more of the other because I wanted the thought experiment. I thought that was the most important. So, so I actually did read the book. Um, and the thought experiment is is really critical to understanding how and why the the technological effect on the, the, the culture of the time is so profound. Well, I think that's why I love that there that books and movies have a gap between them that people aren't completely bound to source material because sure. what that means is that the book still has value once you've seen the movie that you, know, you see the movie if you go read the book that it's going to enrich what you know or, or me I haven't read the book so if I go read it I'm going to find out what you're talking about so now I get something out of the book instead of just a different version of events that's in the movie and I actually really appreciate when that happens yeah, I agree. Um, in, un, under most circumstances, I agree quite a bit. Um, the only reason why in this particular case, I feel so strongly about it is because I, I, I liked the questioning aspect of the book. Um, and I don't feel like there was a whole lot of that in the movie at all. And I don't, I don't even mind that there's not much of it. I just wanted a little bit more so that it was clearly a part of the, the question for the viewer. You know? Well, I think in a, in a lot of ways, um, even though I, I really, really loved the movie, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, I, I do think it's a victim of modern Hollywood. Oh, in, of course. In the sense, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week about uh, people being unwilling to challenge the audience. Part of that has to do with there's a certain formula to the way that screenplays are written now. Sure. Uh, you know, you have to have a clear message of this. And, you know, there's no ambiguity left in film. No, well, I'm sure in independent film there is, but in mainstream film, there's no ambiguity left. There's no questions left. Um, actually, we talked about masterclass before. Well, I signed up for masterclass, and I already mm-hmm. started class with um, the Malcolm Gladwell class on writing. Yeah, 
And one of the things that he says in one of the lessons is, don't answer every question. Leave some things completely unresolved. Sure. And because he says it lingers with people. He says, and that's what gives them value. Um, and I, I think that that's, we're sorely missing that in movies. But so you can see that in that script and, and you know, everything's tied up in a neat little bow. Um, yeah, yeah, and sure. That, that's, I mean, so was Thor Ragnarok and everything else we've ever seen that, you know, more than a niche audience has watched. You know, I will say that's part of the reason why I probably liked Infinity War. Um, the best of all the Marvel movies is because it ends on a question. Yeah. Infinity War was pretty good, but I, I do think that Thor Ragnarok was better. Oh, for pure entertainment value, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the problem with the problem with the movie like Infinity War is it's basically it's predicated on what follows it. Yeah, sure. That's so true. if the next movie sucks, all of a sudden Infinity War sucks. Yeah, I, I guess that's true too. Yeah, the movie really can't stand alone. It's basically meant to be part of a two-part series. It's like what we said about um, Lord of the Rings, right? You know, they gave them the Oscar for part three, even though they're really giving it for all three of them. But how can you really judge those movies separately? Sure. You know, you can say which one you'd like to watch more than once. But, you know, like we both enjoyed the second one the most. But the second one would suck if it wasn't the first one or the third one. Yeah, well, because there's no context or narrative, sure. Yeah, there'd be no beginning and no end to that story. You'd be like, what the fuck am I watching here? You know, it, it, I here's... Okay, I'm going to get a lot of hate. From, I, you know, I, I got to stop apologizing for... We get no hate. hate. Yeah, <laughs> Nobody, okay, everybody's so too fucking go. apathetic to give us any hate. That's true. That's totally true. So <laughs> We've said some acerbic shit on here and some moronic shit, and I haven't heard a damn thing, so go for it. That's true. Yeah, at this point, screw it. Well, let's just set fire to the whole stupid thing. All right, so here's here's my here's my ultimate take on this, right? So I went back. Got our our episodes basically prompt me to do strange things, like rewatch some of these things. Um, <laughs> although I still haven't watched the stupid Hellier documentary. I don't know why I haven't done that. So I'm sorry. I'll get we to gotta that. get back to that. <laughs> yeah, we, one of these days we'll actually go back to that. So I promise by the next episode that I'll at least have some idea about what the hell's going on with those. So here's the thing. I went back and I rewatched some of the um, the Hobbit series, and then I watched um, number two again in the Lord of the Rings series. And because I have the context of the other movies and I have a pretty good memory, um, I, I remembered everything. And here's what I'm going to say: I don't like any of the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the Hobbit movies, the first time through, I was like, oh, this is all right, no, but no, absolute garbage. Were you speaking of formulas? Every single one of them follows the exact same formula. Well, that's not a surprise considering that 90% of what they're doing there is completely made up. I, understandable. But it's the pieces level- pulled from Cimmerillion and other things that have nothing to do... I mean, not nothing to do with The Hobbit, but are not from The Hobbit. Yeah, but you know, some of those stories would have been a lot more more unpredictable and interesting to me as a viewer instead of watching the same movie six times. I think what propels the, the Hobbit movies is just acting. Yeah. You say that, but I mean, I, you know, and I, I love me some Viggo Mortensen. Don't get me wrong. I think he's awesome. No, no, the but Hobbit movies. The Hobbit movies. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I really like... What's his name, uh, Freeman? Yeah. It, uh, I'm, I'm wanting to say Morgan, which is... Yeah, totally I, I do too. <laughs> I like Morgan popped in my head. Uh, um, it's, it's Watson. Yeah, he's, he's very good. 
Um, but the rest of them are pretty, pretty arch- archetypal. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's what I mean. It's him. Yeah, it, he basically makes that entire damn series, you know. Um, and what's his name, Ian? At, 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 yeah, well, yeah, Ian, Ian McKellen goes without 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 speaking. But in the first series, it's an ensemble cast that makes it. You know, like I, I think that um, Liv Tyler was actually very good. Um, I actually thought um, Kate Sean Fonchi Bean was, was great. Oh yeah, Sean Bean was fantastic. Like he, see, that's a real struggle. You know that his his story was probably the most fascinating to me out of all of the characters. Yep, and the most tragic. <laughs> yeah, and the most tragic. And yeah, I hate those movies now. I hate them. Like I, I went from kind of liking them at first um, because back when I originally watched them, I was still kind of a Tolkien nerd. Um, so you know, I was comparing them to the books. Blah, they're totally different than the books. And then I, I, I finally got over that and and went into my whole source material doesn't matter discussion as long as the end result is good from whatever it is that you're producing. You show it enough respect. That's fine. Um, to screw it this is just not good i mean it's slow it's slow paced um not greatly written and incredibly predictable cleanse your palate and go watch willow <laughs> yeah i might do that or i'm gonna it's... go watch this stupid hellier documentary once and for all i'm sorry hellier documentary i'm sure you're fine i'm just angry that i haven't watched you yet it's it's so interesting because um you know we've mentioned before on here that we have like this the whole paradigm of the show two people talking um it's, it's <laughs> that should have been what we called the show <laughs> that's too close to this movie with from the 80s that my friends and i used to watch all the time um oh speaking of do you remember that uh that that series that movie um coffee and cigarettes oh yeah uh so good yeah tom waits and iggy pop uh, arguing tom, over a jukebox unbelievable there's so many morsels from that that movie that if you if you cared about any avant-garde music or art throughout the late nineties to early two thousands, you have to watch that movie. Yeah, Jim Jarmusch is a god. Oh yeah. Um, but the you know with this whole paradigm of two people talking, it's it's done all over the place. There's all kinds of shows, and we've mentioned before like weird studies. Um, I feel like you know like for some reason in the in the last week, like the three. Um, I, I've, I've, there's certain things that we cover that these shows don't. But if you were to smash three shows together, you'd get kind of close to us. So I'm like, it makes me feel better. Where I'm like, oh, we're not really all over the board that different. You know, like we're like Cortex, but we're maybe mm, not as organized, <laughs> <laughs> and we're far more irreverent. We're like last podcast on the left, except we're both not anywhere near as funny as those dudes. And we're kind of like weird studies, but neither of us are as intelligent and articulate as those two fuckers. But, you know, if you throw in a little bit of random political rants every once in a while, you have this show. I feel like, yeah, I agree and I disagree. I don't know. Well, the reason I think about that is because I told you also earlier in the week, I was sitting in my kitchen listening to the last episode of um, last podcast on the left. You know, they do two different kinds of show. They have the their main show, and then they do a side story show every week. And it was a side story one, and so they find weird stuff um, on the internet, and they talk about it. And I'm standing in the kitchen, I got the headphones in, and they're like, so let's talk about goblins in Kentucky. I'm like, oh my god, they're going to talk about hell here. <laughs> like, we found the one paranormal topic that we beat those fuckers to. <laughs> oh man, I, if I could high-five you, I would. That's pretty solid. It's it's funny though because they have a very a really interesting perspective on it because when you watch it, 
Um, actually, this is this is something I was thinking about. Let's take this to a bigger. Let's take this out of that into like a bigger topic. I have a question for you. Have you noticed that people's perception on documentaries? Um, when you tell people like, "Oh, check out this documentary. It's a really good documentary," and then they'll come back to you and they argue about the validity of what the documentary was talking about, and you're like, "No, that's not what I said. I didn't say this documentary is truth. It's really truthful. Yeah. Go learn from it. I said it was a good documentary." You know, like Room 237 is about a, a lot of bullshit theories about The Shining. Most sure. of them that are probably not true at all. But it's a really fucking good documentary. It's really well made. But you know, the reason why that happens is because people have a natural association with documentaries and truth. The mm-hmm. word documentary in and of itself conjures this, this notion that everything that you see in there is believable. Well, I mean... It, it is kind of, right? You know, you're documenting something, but sometimes you're not documenting. Like in the case of Room 237, you're not documenting these people's theories. You're documenting that people have these theories about sure. this movie. That this movie is so cool that people have gone off and created these crazy conspiracy theories about this movie. But you're not saying, I believe these theories. You're saying, check out... You know, like if, I, if you go to Comic-Con... You're not making a movie about the people at Comic-Con. You're making a movie about Comic-Con. Sure. So you're going to see all kinds of crazy people doing, you know, dressed up as this and, and you know, crazy parties and all of this stuff. None of which you're validating. All sure. you're doing is documenting them. You know, like if you go to a war and you do a documentary on war, you're not saying which side of the war you want to win or you shouldn't be. You're documenting war. Yeah, you're you're just capturing what it is. It's the... But you see, I think that's that's where documentaries get in trouble, or at least our perceptions of documentaries get in trouble, is because of things like wartime documentaries and things of the ilk. Um, there's a certain expectation that they're going to be 100% true. Right. Or people like Michael Moore who have a clear agenda and, you know, totally they're right. They can make a documentary like that. But it's like this perception that all documentaries are trying to make you believe them. Some of sure. them aren't. Yeah, um, you know, like um, God, what's his name? The guy who he has a podcast called um, Very Ape TV. Um, shit, Sean something. I can't remember what his last name is. Yeah, we are Dunn. bad. We are bad with names today. Sean Dunn. Um, yeah, you know he's done. He's done a documentary on the Juggalos. He's not a Juggalo. He's not trying to say anything about them. It's just a documentary about them. This subculture exists, and I, I think it's 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 indicative of this addiction that we have to truth that comes from our devices going back to the top of the show the fact that we can google everything now we're all addicted to truth this is true this has to be true i need to know the truth sometimes you need ambiguity sometimes you need questions sometimes you need flexibility because that rigidity makes us all into fucking assholes all of us sure Sure. myself included i'm definitely guilty of that and have been in the past many many times well, plus there's there's a certain importance that we've lost when it comes to to our ability to wonder, right? And I think that that the in, incessant need for truth kills our ability to to ask the question as to whether something is truth or not, or if there's more than one truth in any given situation, you know, or um, just you know, or even just to watch something and go, I don't know what I think about that at all. Sure. Sure. Like, why do we why do we need an answer right now? <laughs> I mean, I would I would love to hear one politician 
just one politician one time, somebody asked them a question and go, you know what? I don't have a clue. Yeah, that'd be really refreshing. I'll figure it out because that's going to be my job if you vote for me. But I don't know. You know, like anybody that runs for president tells you that this is what's going to happen and this is what that they're all fucking making lies and promises because they don't even know what it's like to have that job. They don't know what they're going to, what, what's going to happen when they get in there. They don't know what's in the briefcase that they hand them. You know, all of this shit. You know, by the way, we're at war with this and we have a secret war here and we're doing this. And by the way, Area 51 and all of this shit, they don't know any of that. So anything they tell you on the campaign trail, is a fantasy. You know, look, look at Obama. He said, you know, I'm going to close um, Guantanamo Bay. And then he gets in office and he's like, fuck, totally not feasible. Yeah. You know what gives me hope about humanity, though, is that I think we have an innate sense to, to, to feel the bullshit, if that makes any sense. And I think that's, that's inherently why Hillary lost um, is because regardless of what your political swings are, I, I think that there's a natural apprehension to insincerity. Um, and I think Hillary, as a practiced politician for her entire life, embodies that. And I'm not saying she's a bad person. I'm not saying she's a bad candidate or anything like that. I'm just saying that our, our, we needed some truth. We needed to feel like someone was giving us the straight truth as a politician. And Hillary is the opposite of that, you know? Um, she, she, she's born and bred in a world of, 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 of politics that is so staunch and so refined that it feels rehearsed. Yeah. There's, I don't know. There's this whole, there's a Brad Pitt quote from a long time ago, um, where he said, when we vote, we vote for the best liar. And I, I think he's almost right. I don't think we vote for the best liar because Donald Trump is not the best liar. He's actually a really shitty liar. Yeah. We vote for the most interesting liar. We sure. vote for the oh, spectacle. We vote for the spectacle. Because he's intriguing, sure. Well, it, it's, it's not even the intriguing. It's just like it has an inherent story to it. You know what I mean? Like um, it, it's on the table. Everything, you know, like it, everything is on the table. You know, sure. it's like, oh, he's nuts. Yeah, he's nuts. But I know that. It's yeah. not a secret. It's not hidden from me. I totally see that. Um, whereas, you know, somebody, um, any, anybody that you take that, including Republicans and uh, Democrats, and none of them that made it to the primaries, all of the other people, to some degree, the problem was people didn't see what was on the table. So it sure. wasn't as interesting. So, you know, the, 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 I mean, the guy was on the news all through the campaign for doing outrageous things. Um, so guess what? He was the most interesting thing. And that's, that's what happens. You know, look at all the people who have lost that were boring. Al Gore, really fucking boring. Uh, yeah, John Kerry. Even, totally boring. Might even have had the right idea, but totally fucking boring, yeah. Walter Mondale, boring. Uh, <laughs> uh, when Nixon ran against uh, Kennedy, guess which one was boring? Nixon. Then sure. later, Nixon happened to be the more interesting one. We always vote for the more interesting liar. What was um, Mitt Romney? Fucking boring. You know, like, and this isn't who they really are. I'm saying the public perception. So you take, like, you take somebody like Obama and you, and you have Mitt Romney, right? In reality, Obama's, he's pretty straight laced, but he has a sense of humor. And sure. that little bit was just enough to put him over the top on Romney. Because well, he's, Romney, he's, he's clever and charismatic, yeah. 
and Romney was stitched with the, the Mormon label, which everybody was like, well, automatically, I think that makes him boring. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's unfortunate in the sense that, I mean, it is unfortunate in some degree, to some degree, that he lost because, because of prejudice. <laughs> that people were prejudiced against his religion. <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody talks know, about that because he's a powerful white dude. But he, <laughs> people were prejudiced against him because he, he's a Mormon. It's it's very weird that I, I subconsciously in my head, um, uh, or not even subconsciously. I mean, I, I quietly said to myself before we started this episode that we weren't going to talk about politics. At least I wouldn't be the one that prompted it. Well, there that goes. I don't know that you've ever been the one. I'm always the one kicking the <laughs> kicking the bee's nest. Bee's nest? Yeah. Hornet's nest. Hornet's nest. I guess bee's nest would be right. No, beehive. Beehive, yeah. And that's not as interesting. That, that sounds like you're kicking a woman in the head from 1945. Good God. The beehive. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't advise that, by the way. Don't time travel and then, and then beat up women. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Don't do it now either, obviously. But <laughs> that's one of the weirdest sentences you've ever said. Uh, I gotta keep it interesting. Okay, so so no assault via time travel. Um, so should we start, um, you know, getting our applications ready for Spotify? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm on it, man. I'm. Oh my god, uh, dude! They just so literally scary. took over half the world today. I mean, good on them for recognizing the power of podcasts, though. That's really fantastic. Yeah, so for people who aren't aware of this, um, first of all, I guess I'll give a little background. If you don't know what Anchor is, um, technically, is it this show? No, not this show. No, 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 no. no. Um, Creative Minds for a little while was on Anchor. And Anchor is a podcast host. Before that, it was also, we talked about it on this show in the past, Anchor. Yep. Um, before it was a podcasting app, actually. It was like this new, it was an audio social media type thing. It was like a Snapchat for audio. You know, you put up audio and it would disappear in a day. Um, and then what they found over time is people were like, can you just make this into a fucking way to make podcasts? And so they did it. And they kind of shook up the industry because they're like, we will host your podcast. They still do this. We will host your podcast for free. Yeah. Um, so I had my other podcast on there for a little while. But then I got a little nervous about the fact that it was free. And I'm like, how are they going to make money? And what if they start inserting ads into my shows? And I didn't want to build a show and have to go back and go through all that mess. So anyways, um, along that line, what Anchor did is they started... They did some amazing stuff in the last year. They made it so that for the intro... Um, for the for the newcomer, someone who wants to make a podcast but doesn't know all the technical stuff, you know, like uh, if you go back and listen to the beginning of the show, like we were, you know, trying out what if we use earbuds and what if we use this microphone... For someone who doesn't want to do all that shit, you can do it right in your phone, right in this app. You can edit in it. You can put music underneath. the. You can all this stuff. It's it's a beautiful little thing. Um, so that's Anchor. And then you have Gimlet. Gimlet is one of the producers. Technically, they're, you could call them a podcast network. They produce many, many shows. Um, I think we've mentioned them before on this show, as a matter of yes. fact. Um because Gimlet was one of the people that used Memberful, which is the thing that I use for membership on our site. Um, but they have a lot of the top podcasts. Um, like five five of the top podcasts of the top 100 or whatever are made by Gimlet. And they have a whole bunch of other ones. So you have these two companies. So one on the low end of the spectrum, um, making podcasts for newcomers and a way to 
you know, throw out these podcasts real quickly and get them in an Apple iTunes and they actually put it on everything for you and you have Gimlet. Top of the top of the heap, making some of the top podcasts in the world super produced, NPR quality stuff. And then boom, here comes Spotify and buys both of them in the same day. Wow. What what do you think the end game is there? I think the end game is that they want the money from pot everybody's you know, if you if you go and you look enough in the news before this happened, this is not from this, but before everybody's talking two thousand nineteen is the year that podcasts are legitimate. And what they mean by podcasts are legitimate, podcasts are like twenty over twenty years old. <laughs> They're definitely legitimate. Um <clears throat> what they mean is this is the year where they become mainstream, even more sure. so than they are now. You know, like we've talked about this before, where podcasts are becoming movies and becoming TV shows. Um, well, what's happening because of that is all these companies are going, hmm, how do I get money out of that? Sure. How do I make money out of that? And Spotify last year introduced, finally introduced podcasts onto their, their form, you know, into their app. And Google's supposedly dumping a bunch of money into podcasting right now. I'm not making content, but trying to get a piece of the market. And they're all just trying to get edgeway at Apple. Because Apple, like, still to this day, it doesn't matter what podcast you have, 90%, if not more, of your podcasts, um, podcast downloads are coming through Apple or through something that pulls from iTunes. Uh, sorry, Apple Podcasts. You know, like if you listen in Overcast, that's technically coming from iTunes. He's pulling it. Marco is pulling it from iTunes. So if you upload to iTunes, it goes to Overcast. And it's the same with Castro and a bunch of the other third-party apps. Um, but then you have you know a few others like Spotify, um, Pocket Cast actually pulls from iTunes, but they're owned by NPR now. Um, Google Podcasts, and then you have like. One or two other ones like Radio, I can't remember, Radio Republic and then um, iHeartRadio. Uh, I can't remember. There's the Stitcher. There's one too. Oh, Stitcher. Yeah, yeah. But you're not getting a lot of hits from those. Like, for example, in this show, if I went in and I looked, we probably have like of all those things that are not coming from iTunes, we've probably had five downloads total. Um, that's just a guess. So what these guys are doing is they're going, well, if they have all of that... We want some of that, which in some ways is good because to be honest, they're not going to take anything from iTunes because most of the people are using an iTunes because they're using an iPhone. And so nobody's going to go and use a Google podcast on their iPhone. It's just not going to fucking happen. And then... Do you think at any point there's going to be someone who is smart enough to try to take um, Spotify and build it into an OS? No, that that wouldn't be smart. That would be dumb. Okay. No, because I think that they're. I think what Spotify is trying to do is they're this. What this podcast move is more along the lines of they're trying to do one of two things. They're either trying to be Netflix, which means they're going to take all these Gimlet shows, even though they've promised that the Gimlet shows aren't going to be hidden behind a paywall, but they have said that they are going to make some shows just for Spotify. So they're they're everybody's on this Netflix model right now where you know like I want my stuff and I'm going to put it on my platform that you can only get on my platform you know sure. the Apple Apple making video and all of these things 
CBS's All Access. And, and yes, the, exactly. The, and uh, all of that's going to fail miserably. Sure. Because there's, there's, we're not all going to subscribe to all of it. So you're, you're either going to make money and have a tiny market, which these guys don't know how to do, or yeah. you're going to go, fine, fuck it. You know, I mean, look at Apple. Apple's now going to put um, iTunes on non-Apple devices. You know, you go buy a TV now, you can get iTunes on that TV. That's yeah, because mean, that model doesn't work. Well, Crystal has Apple AirPlay on her in her car. So yeah, I know. I understand. Well, I mean, like iTunes would be built into these TVs. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. The way that, um, you know, like Vudu and um, uh, Hulu and Netflix are. Sure. Uh, so they're either going for that model, which I'm, I'm leaning more towards that's the model they're going for, or they're going for the Amazon Prime model, which is you pay us this and we give you all of these things, which, I mean, the Amazon Prime model is brilliant. Sure. Um, because at first you were just paying to save money on shipping. And then they said, well, we'll give you some songs for free. And as, as they started making more and more money, they started upgrading the things that you got because they could, they could afford it. So you now, you know, like the Amazon Prime is actually a pretty damn good video platform. It oh, used yeah. to suck. You know, um, you know what's funny though. It, it, it's funny you say that. Like, I watch a lot of stuff on Amazon Prime, and I think their interface is actually the best. In some ways, it's really straightforward. Um, yeah, and I would say that their recommendations might be the best. Oh yeah, you know, like you might like this, and I'm like, totally. I watched a weird thing about the paranormal, and now you just recommended like five paranormal things. <laughs> They're better than okay. This is what's funny to me. Going back to our algorithm episode. I did mention how shitty am I mean um the Netflix, Netflix is yeah you know this is really bad YouTube's sucks yeah that's true fucking awful so bad that I actually on my devices I signed out of YouTube I'm like your algorithm sucks so much that I'm not going to give you the fucking data on what I'm watching so fuck you guys yeah 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 and it, God, it's it's so it's so weird to me that they're bad at it though considering how much data they have access to and how much work they're putting into AI. Holy shit. I mean, Ray Kurtzfall, what the fuck are you doing over there? Come on now. Yeah, sure. Like, seriously. It's, it's like, it only, it'll only show you two things. It's either, it'll show you stuff on, like, all the things that you're subscribed to. It'll just, you know, you might want to watch these. No shit. I'm subscribed to them. Of course I want to fucking watch them. <laughs> and then, or, is like, by the way, that one video that you watched half of, let me show you 15 other things like this. You're like... Just because I, I watched that 40 Damn seconds it. of a video on journaling doesn't mean I want 40 videos on journaling. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how after all this time they still haven't gotten that right considering... It's because and, they don't give a fuck. And speaking of, of algorithms that work pretty well too, the Spotify algorithm for music is actually pretty good as well. I've discovered some pretty interesting artists that way actually. Well, the, the thing about Spotify is it's actually not a very good algorithm. Really? Because there's, there's humans behind it. Oh, most okay. of the stuff you get is it, there's a it gives you a start. From what I understand, there's a huge article. I probably won't be able to find it, but I'll try to. There's a huge article or a video I can't remember where they talk to one of the people that works at Spotify that makes playlists. I think it's a video actually. It might have been The Verge. Um, oh, I, I actually really like that though. And so I think if That's I understand cool. how it works is they get a basis from an algorithm, but then a you know so it's like this person likes these kind of things. But then a person actually sits down. It's the same thing with Apple Music. Those Apple Music playlists are made by people. Oh, cool! Not the you know not the the best uh, you know like um, 
the ones that look like channels, but you know, like if you see best of Iggy pop or, um, uh, deep cuts from Iggy pop, those are made by humans. They're curated by humans. Um, that's why they bought beats because beats was all curated playlists, human created playlists. So they brought that model into Apple music. I actually really dig that. I don't know why that makes me feel so good about it. (laughs) I like the idea. I like the idea that a human is interacting with, uh, my taste in that sense. I would rather talk to a person than a computer about my musical taste. And what a cool fucking job. Yeah, dude, how awesome is that to find the deep cuts by Iggy Pop? That's that sounds like a job that you and I would do. Oh, totally. Like like the the weirdest of Nick Cave. Good luck with that one. Yeah. Like, oh here's here's that live version of Red Right Hand. Um <laughs> uh, that will always make me think of True Detective, that song. It makes me think it's that movie. I mean, that song has been in so many movies. It makes me think of so many different things. It was in, wasn't in, um, what's that Christian Slater movie where he's a DJ? Um, you just added that you just smashed together a collection of words that doesn't make any sense in my brain. Christian Slater and a, and a DJ. What? Yeah. He's like a late night DJ, but he's in high school. Oh, um, oh, 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 oh. It's yeah, a fucking cool. awesome movie. Um, sure, sure. um, What's that called? I have no idea. I'm We're Googling it right now. Today. DJ movie. Pump up the volume. Fuck. There you go. Such a good movie. I'm pretty sure Red Right Hand's in that movie. Huh. I believe that's, that's, that's one of the songs he plays. That's really surprising considering what that, that movie is overall. Yeah. That's a dope movie. That is a dope movie. I haven't seen that movie in, God, 15 years probably. Yeah, if anybody listening to this hasn't watched that movie, watch that movie. It's so cool. You know, every once in a while, I have this this really weird impulse to watch certain movies that I just absolutely love but never think about. Um, and lately, I've been having this really, really powerful need to watch Gross Point Blank. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen I that love movie. I love that movie. It, it's probably in my... And there's, a, there's a few in that, too. Um, good Night and Good Luck I want to watch again. Um, that was the, that's the one about the reporters. Uh, that's, that's Edward R. Murrow. Um, yeah, that produced, one's really good. It's amazing. And it's produced and written by Clooney, of all people. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah, you um, got, there's uh, the guy that plays Gavin Belson from uh, Silicon yep, Valley. He's yep. in there. Smaller yep. part, but he's in there. It's, it's, it, it's, but it's such a labor of love movie because it, it, it does a lot of the things that we talk about all the time, right? Like, the, like 10 minutes worth of the beginning of that movie is a, a speech by Edward R. Murrow. <laughs> yeah. And it's not apologetic. And there's and like the speech zero context for it. And it's so, so powerful. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it's really, it's, it's really relevant to today too, for anyone who's, who's curious, go check the, the first 10 minutes of that movie out. Um, but I also want to see, you know, Ed Wood. Um, that's another good one. Uh, I don't know. I just have this weird kick to like go through and watch my my mainstream artsy movies because I don't think those those are totally noir or independent. But I but they're they're when they're when you could still get away with that kind of shit in mainstream. So it's big budget movies with brains, basically. Right, uh, like we were saying with um, Jim Jarmusch too. Yeah, which there was always. What's interesting about his films is they were intelligent. But they were also there was also like a Cretan quality to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Which I, I, feel like the, I feel like the Coen brothers do a good job of that. Speaking of big Hollywood that does clever things with weird things as well. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to find that speech from the end of the movie because I feel like it actually might be apropos to what we were talking about social media. I get this. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of it as well. I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I have the DVD somewhere. Yes, I still have DVDs, folks. 
Yeah, I do too. I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of them though, <laughs> without oh, throwing talk, them in the garbage can. Talk to Crystal. Um, she just she just offloaded about 400 of my. Uh, I think she there's a service um, and they pay you for DVDs based on on what DVD it is, and some you can get paid as much as like three bucks for them, and some are like a quarter. Hmm. Yeah, because I also I'm trying. I've been trying to. I want to. Uh, a lot of these books that I have on my shelves, I don't need the physical copies. Like the ones I love, I want to keep the physical copies of. But the, you know, the other ones, I want to clear up the shelves. But I want to donate them, and I want to donate them somewhere where it's like you know, like donate them to like a homeless shelter or something where you know it's like here, read some good books and like feed your brain. Sure. You know, I don't want to donate them to like somebody that's just going to resell them like Goodwill. Sure. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I know that they, they do good things with the money that they make from it, but I just, I literally want, I want to give the books to somebody that's going to get them for free. Sure. I was reading, you know, you can send them soldiers overseas and everything, but I was like, maybe, maybe a prison or something. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I can't find the speech. It's such a bummer. I know I have it. What's frustrating is I have it written down in a notebook because I was fascinated by that ending speech. Um, yeah, I guess we'll just have to accept that I'm not going to find it. Um, you know, I, do you have you always talk about your list? What do you have on your list? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> um, that was definitely something I wanted to talk about. Um, I feel like there there was an era in Hollywood in which black and white was okay again, um, and I I really I I have a weird appreciation for black and white cinema. Um, and I don't know if it's because of my photographic sensibility and kind of how my, my artistic brain grew itself from its infancy. But um, I want to talk about mo- monochromaticism um, or grayscale or black and white or whatever the heck you want to call it and how differently we see the world, how, how differently we, we perceive the world because of color. Yeah, I think... Actually, go into that a little bit deeper. Tell me what you think about it. I feel like I lose the structure of things with color. And with without color, in the absence of in the absence of of, of, of tones other than black, white, and gray, um, I see I see form a lot more clearly. And I I, I, I hearken back to to certain photographers and, and architects. Um, Helmut Newton kind of comes to mind as a photographer, um, just mm-hmm. because I, I I loved his work. Um, and there's a starkness to it. Um, there are a few there are a few shots by Annie Leibovitz that kind of stick out in my mind as well. Um, What's that? Vivian Mayer. Yeah, Vivian Mayer as well. Um, love him or hate him, there, there are certain things that Ansel Adams did in black and white that are just remarkable. I think he um, might be my favorite now. Really? Oh, yeah. man, I have a hard time with that. But maybe it's, it's, I have a hard time with that because of my rebellious nature. It's like, it's like film students who don't like Steven Spielberg because he's the big guy. You know what I mean? Well, I feel that's, like, that's asinine. Steven Spielberg is a fantastic fucking director. <laughs> well, I think what Ansel Adams is, is Ansel Adams is Mozart. Oh, true. Yeah, that's a good point. Where, you know, like, oh, you know, you you know, Ode to Joy, cool, good for you. Um, It doesn't sink in. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you sit down and you pay attention and you go, holy fuck, this is otherworldly. Yeah. And every once in a while, I'll just pick up an Ansel photo and go, whoa. 
Well, you know, plus like the, the, other, the other side of that too is understanding how... So as a photographer, part of the reason why I appreciate his work is because I understood what he did in order to produce some of those photos. You know, right. he, would take, he would take full six by nine sheets of glass, paint them in silver nitrate, and then hike with packs of donkeys up the sides of mountains to take one shot one time at the perfect exposure. <laughs> yeah, with a crazy glass back camera too. Yeah, and to think of the... I mean... To think of how well you have to understand light in order to produce a photo of that level of precision is just absolutely shocking. I mean, as a photographer, I, you know, I, especially in the digital age, I'm, I'm used to being able to snap away. I mean, don't get me wrong, though, I'm not that guy. You know, I, I'm very choosy about how and when I shoot. But there's definitely there, there's definitely a, a, a free willingness that I have that a guy like Ansel Adam doesn't. You know, every single every aspect of that shot is thought through from beginning to end because he's only got one shot at it and it's going to take six hours to produce that one shot. Right. You know, and there's, and there's a level, there's a level of dedication and precision to that, that I think is really lost on modern art. Like we don't have very many people who work with that level of patience or care anymore. Not saying there, I'm not saying there aren't, I'm sure there are. Um, and I just don't know who they are, but, but it's, it's not, it's not something that has as wide a, a level of appreciation by the general public as it once did. Well, I think that a lot of things get muddled now because, um, you know, a lot of these people that we talk about you know, with that reverence were existing in a time of pretty much, uh, very little technology or at least what we would recognize as technology. So now you have all of these people, you know, like take like a Casey Neistat or um, Peter McKinnon, right? They're making these videos on YouTube um, sometimes daily at certain points. They're utilizing all of these programs that make all of these other things easy. So it's easy for us to overlook the actual work that they're doing um, because it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he, he spends a lot of time, you know, adjusting the color on this or whatever. But the program's really the person doing the work. So we don't, I, th- I think we, we don't give credit anymore because technology is so involved in everything. Whereas somebody like Ansel Adams, you can't really give, you know, like, well, that donkey deserves some credit, right? <laughs> You're not going to say that, right? So, uh, you know, like, uh, well, Adobe deserves a little credit in this. I think that we have a, uh, we dismiss or, uh, because we have access also to all these people, we dismiss that there are people like that because we don't actually ever have to think about it. You know, I think there's there's a wisdom in... We talk about gratitude all the time, right? But I think that, that an extension of gratitude that becomes really important um, for me as an artist in, in particular when I, I view certain mediums is, is appreciation. Um, and I think a, a appreciation for what it took to do something is, is, is really important so that you understand the magnitude of what it is that you're looking at. You know, for example, um, when I was growing up, oh God, this, I'm so glad we did a profile on her um, in the previous version of the show, but I, I didn't really like Frida Kahlo's work um, until I learned how and why she had to produce the work that she did. Right. And then I, I was just absolutely floored by it. I mean, it, it in, in a lot of weird ways, it kind of changed my life. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I thought she was just a, a woman who liked to paint selfies. Um, and, and without the context, you lose, you lose so much of the depth of, of the work itself and why it was produced. Right. Yeah, she... I think what she taught me was sometimes art can be really f- fucking ugly. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're like a lot of the stuff that she made wasn't necessarily beautiful. Yeah, um, and it, in a lot of ways too. It wasn't just the the form or the construction, but the subject matter on top of that. There was a brutality to it that was just just palpable once you understood it. It was just unbelievably just brutal. Yeah, I think I think oh, that's also why people sometimes have problems with Ansel Adams because um, they have trouble connecting that pain and um, those personal things to pictures of mountains, sure. and trees, and fog, and the night sky. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't really have any more than that sentence. <laughs> other than that. I was, wondering, I was wondering where you're going with that. <laughs> I just think that I, I, I started with the point and then realized that is the point. I, I've said the point. <laughs> well, I guess I, I think Ansel Adams in a lot of ways is unique in that in order to, when I get the most out of Ansel Adams, it's not in, in being a relate, being able to relate to either him or the work. It's seeing magnitude and grandeur. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's understanding the scale of art and, and how vast it can be. Um, even, you know, within, because Ansel Adams is not making the mountain, but he's showing you how fucking impossible it is for us to come up with anything even close to the splendor of that with human hands. Yes. And there's, um, so I was in the recycle bookstore one time waiting to go into OPA and the restaurant across the street for those who don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And uh, I'm walking around and I, I see this, there's this Ansel Adams book and I think it was called like um, something like Ansel Adams journals. And then it had the years and it was, it was a really cool book because it was photographs, but interspersed with journal entries. Um, and I was just kind of flipping through it. I'm like, Oh, this is kind of a really interesting format. And all was, and then I found this picture and the picture, I'm not going to remember what it's called. Um, I could probably track it down. But it's it's literally, it's like, you know, picture of a tree and blah, blah, blah. You know, like his his titles weren't like, you know... Uh, poetic. Yeah, poetic is a great word. <laughs> he literally just described yeah. what, he, what the picture was and the date. Mountain um, and Douglas fir. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like Mountain Douglas fir, 1963. Uh, Yosemite, but it, it was this picture of the, like a the top of it looked like the top of a pile of of rocks or a top of maybe a, a small hill or mountain, but it's like stone, and then a tree, but then there's this fog behind it, and you you look at it and it's just it's breathtaking because it's black and white, but there are so many different textures and and tones so you've got this gray and then you have this black that's like black black and then this fog drifting through it there's this white and there's like and it looks like there's probably like if you were like depth wise you look at the texture the, the the layers there's probably like nine layers in this photo and you're going this guy looked at this and go oh i better take a picture of this and set up the camera and took this picture and it's it, 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 like I was just standing in the bookstore looking at this picture and like it was almost bringing me to tears. And I think that's the moment where I was like, he's my guy. And and that so perfectly illustrates what, what I mean when I think of Ansel Adams too, in that for him, it's a study in just absolute grandeur. And, and, and I don't even know how to describe it, but the only way I can is, is breathtaking, breathtaking 
um, in a way that only nature can be. Um, and, and I don't think anyone else that I've seen has captured it with a level of honesty that he has. Um, in that, you know, and, and I think that the, the way he named his pieces, you know, and I could be totally assigning a, a, a belief from my own uh, belief system into how he thought of things. But I, I, I would, I actually really liked that he wasn't poetic because it allowed you then to make the inference on your own. You know, it allowed your brain to, to, to conjure what um, the image meant to you. And I, I think that's, that's really great. Um, in its in its selflessness, you know, he didn't he didn't make it his. He wanted you to make it yours. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the formulaic things in film. There's we need more ambiguity. We need more openness, and we um, need more gen- and we need more generosity too. You know, something something about the 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 wrapping up of stories feels really preachy to me. And it's. I don't know. It's boring. It's just boring. It's it's boring because you know it. It. I think in some ways, it feeds into this this outrage that everybody seems to be feeling now because we are all a generation. The most most of the people now, um, actually, everybody alive now, pretty much, grew up in the time of TV and movies. So we've been promised these close this closure in stories but our lives don't get that closure. Sure. We don't get that. We don't get the hero. We don't get the Mr. Smith goes to Washington that, you know, this one honest man who changes everything. We get ambiguity and complexity and difficulty and strife. And it pisses people off because we want the movie. Yeah, but do you think we really want the movie? Or Or we're conditioned to want the movie and that's what we want now because of that. Same thing, but we want yeah, it. We yeah. absolutely fucking want it because that's. And listen to what people are saying. You know, like I just want to be able to do this. I just. What they're really saying is, I just want the happy fucking ending. Why can't I have the happy ending? Then I suppose. Then I suppose the the our addiction to closure is just as 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 socially created as our addiction to sugar. Totally, and that's you know, why we're, we're we're exposed to it so young that our idea of a completed narrative is is the thing that defines what we understand the storytelling. Right, and that's why people are so sassy because they're, <laughs> they're continually. I'm being nice by saying sassy, but because we're begin, continually being disappointed. You know, like I was reading something, they were saying that um, parents, uh, it's a detriment for parents to tell their children, you can be whatever you want because you're, you're promising something that's not true, that they can't be whatever they want. They can, they can strive for things, but life is difficult. And, you know, there's other people in the world and the world, everything that they get isn't going to be the way that they want it. And so you create these people with these unrealistic expectations and then they spend their whole life fucking disappointed. What would you say instead? I would say life can be difficult, but you judge a person by how hard they work to get the things that they want. And as long as you work hard, you'll find happiness. Hmm. Because that's, that's pretty good, Chad. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a realistic thing. You know, like when you can, if you, if you believe that and you come home from work and you go, so I didn't get my promotion, but I busted my ass today. At least I can take solace in that. No, you're not taking solace in that. You're actually 
you're taking pride in it. Uh, synchronicity. Synchronicity. My boss and I just had an hour-long conversation about this today. Really? Yeah. Um, because, you know, we're dealing with stuff with our company and stuff like that. And we were talking about how and, how and why he, he and I got along so well or why we understood each other so well. And that was basically it. Um, we, we get along so well because we understand that nothing will ever be perfect, but we busted our ass so we can, we, can, we can duck out at the end of the day knowing that there's nothing else anyone else could have done to improve what we did that day. And, and the thing about it is if you actually look at people who have, quote unquote, that would say, quote unquote, I've had a good life. Sure. They didn't get, you know, the happy ending wasn't, you know, like, and then I won the Oscar. The happy ending was in the work, was in the doing. You know, Clint Eastwood is, what is he, like fucking 175 now? God, who knows? <laughs> he's still making movies. He doesn't that's, have that's to. He's fucking loaded. Dude, that's unbelievable, by the way. He's how, loaded. He's happily how, married. How the hell does that guy have time to make another movie? <laughs> it's it's because it exactly what we're talking about. His happiness is in the doing. Is in the doing, sure, absolutely. And he he just he doesn't have to make those movies, but his he, his sense of who he is and his satisfaction is in doing that, and so he does it, and he does it because that you know, like if you love somebody. Nobody has to make you do anything for them because you love them. So you're going to do stuff for them. Well, if you love doing something, nobody has to make you do it. So by promising that working on things that we care about will give us satisfaction, we're giving something realistic to people. And maybe the world would be a better place if we understood that there's never going to be a utopia, going back to that part of the topic. There's never going to be a perfect world. And you don't want a fucking perfect world. Because it would be boring and we'd all be jumping off of fucking cliffs. <laughs> every, every utopian novel, the, the basis of every utopian novel is, holy shit, this isn't what we wanted it to be. Uh, what's that movie that I just... Um, I've been thinking about watching that one too, Logan's Run. I remember that one. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a great, there's a great novel. I wouldn't say great. A good novel by Ira Levin, the guy who wrote uh, Boys from Brazil and Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. It's called This Perfect Day. And uh, it's about utop- or dystopian future. Um, but technically, it's about a utopian future that's actually a dystopia, um, which is what all of them are. And like they have to take these drugs so that they have no sexual feelings. And it's, it's, it goes back to what I was, you know, like a lot of the stuff that we were talking about with 1984 and then my kind of like little little rant on socialism last week. When you try to make everybody quote unquote equal, the only way to do it is to squish us all. Yeah, sure. And to beat us all down. Well, okay, so, yeah, because you need to live within the lowest common denominator. The only way we're ever going to be happy and that we'll all feel free is when we accept three things. Life is going to be uncomfortable. Life is going to require work. And we're all going to get different things. And that's awesome. Yeah, and that's 100% okay. You know, like, for example, if, you know, like, we, we know we, we can't, everybody can't live the life of, like, uh, you know, Donald Trump before he was president, you know, just like loaded dude who travels the world. Okay. There's, there's, there's no way because, you know, there'd be nobody bringing us food. Um, sure. But it doesn't mean that we all have to be the people fucking mopping the toilets. 
what it means is we all find happiness in different things. Some of the happiest people I've ever known in my life were doing some of the most horrible, (laughs) degrading jobs. But they didn't care about that because they had a family. So, and their family is what brought them the joy in their life. So like doing this job was just this thing that they did. You know, like um, if I love podcasting, I fucking hate editing, but I do it. Why? Because if I don't do it, these episodes don't come out. Um, So it's just this thing that I do. It doesn't mean that, you know, like I'm a bitch because I have to do my own editing. It's just part of who I am to get in order to be who I want to be. That's something I need to do. You know, most writers will tell you that um, they hate the process of editing. Or they'll tell you they hate the process of writing, some of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And some days it's both. Uh, But there's certain things you have to do to achieve the things that you want. And that's okay. That's not because the world's broken. That's because our expectations are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I found the speech, by the way. Oh, did you really? Yeah. And it's fairly appropriate, I'd say. I don't want to end on it. So I'm just going to say it now and then we'll talk about it. Gotcha. So, um, I began by saying that our history will be what we make it. If we go on as we are, then history will take its revenge and retribution will not limp in catching up with us. Just once in a while, let us exalt the importance of ideas and information. Let us dream to the extent of saying that on a given Sunday night, the time normally occupied by Ed Sullivan, is given over to a clinical survey on the state of American education. And a week or two later, the time normally used by Steve Allen is devoted to a thoroughgoing study of American policy in the Middle East. Would the corporate image of their respective sponsors be damaged? Would the shareholders write us up in their wrath and complain? Would anything happen? other than a few million people would have received a little illumination on subjects that may well determine the future of this country and therefore the future of the corporations. To those who say people wouldn't look, they wouldn't be interested, they're too complacent, indifferent, and insulated, I can only reply there is, in one reporter's opinion, considerable evidence against that contention. But even if they are right, what have they got to lose? Because if they are right and this instrument is good for nothing but to entertain, amuse, and insulate, then the tube is flickering now. And we will soon see the whole signal lost. This instrument can teach. It can illuminate. And it can even inspire, but it can only do so to the extent that humans are determined to use it towards those ends. Otherwise, it is merely wires and lights in a box. Fuck, if that's not appropriate. Bam. That's that's computers, that's phones, it's anything. Movies. Edward Armbrough is absolutely amazing. And you know what's funny is, you know who follows that model? BBC. Huh. That the mod people don't know this, but the British Broadcasting was it channel corporation company, company? BBC. So. It's it's state run, so it's like their PBS. But they're they do things like they have Doctor Doctor Who is a PBS show, but 
in order for the funding to continue. For every Doctor Who they put on, they have to put on an educational program. They have to put on a planet Earth or something like that. And those educational programs have to be in primetime slots. They can't be thrown into shit slots. That's pretty amazing. What a different world that is. It's pretty amazing. I mean, things are still fucked up in England, so it's not the answer to everything, but... <laughs> sure. But they at least they got something. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's incredible. It, it gives me a, a weird well of hope to, to know that... It, and and my sister lived there for a while too, and I visited quite often um, for other reasons as well. Um, and I remember that, like I'd watch like Planet Earth at like nine p.m. Yeah, I mean, and it's that's when we were younger. That kind of happened a little bit, you know. Like you mentioned, um, what's his name, the Nature Guy, Attenborough, last week. Um, mutual member, Mutual of Omaha. I totally do. Um, what was that's the show little... called? That was the sponsor. It was Mutual of Omaha's. Wild, wild kingdom wild kingdom i believe is wild kingdom something like that that was on in prime time yeah I on cbs or something yep oh maybe abc probably abc because abc is owned by disney yeah um, i mean the number of things i watched on that is shocking like i mean i i loved that show loved it still used it. to be on in prime time and then i remember uh what was that there's a bunch of shows that are coming up now nova remember that one yep that's pbs yeah, that's PBS, but it was still on. Um, that's still on like, the air, by the way. I feel like there was there was a, a kind of strategic. Well, it, it's different, right? We consumed media differently back then because it was only on TV, so time slots actually mattered, right? Uh, but but the time slots were very strategic, um, and I feel like at one point it wasn't just about um, advertising pushes, but it was as much about the number of people and who would be watching it as well. Yeah, and there was. There were different people putting money into different things at the time too. You know, you, a lot of amazing things have happened in technology. But the problem, the reason that we have a lot of these problems is because we've gotten really good at doing the numbers. Yeah. You know, like people ask all the time, even though we will go watch them and pay to see these remakes, why do they keep making fucking remakes? They keep making remakes because there's money proven that they'll make money from it. Sure. And it, instead of risking it on a riskier film that, you know, like uh, something challenging, like we say, they know like, hey, if I put, you know, 50 million in this, I'll make 130 million. Sure. Even though it's, you know, it's just another remake of, um, well, I guess it wouldn't be Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> but um, something that uh, maybe wouldn't offend people, I guess. Well, I, I feel like, I mean, we talk about this every so often um, in various forms, but I feel like I feel like media, at least large media of that type, is not just not humane anymore. You know? It's, it's not human anymore. Yeah. Human or humane. Sure. It's, 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 like, um, it's like a synthesis of human life. Sure. That, you know, they're, they're kind of human stories, but they're not. Because human stories, as we know, are a little bit fucked up. They're a little bit broken. They're a little uneven. Sure. Um, so it, we, they, don't, they don't carry with us. Um, somebody said this the other day. They're like, oh, there's a lot of very interesting movies being put out. But the moment you watch them, you forget them. Sure. And that's totally true. I think about a lot of the movies. And I'm not talking about like the obviously stupid, really big blockbuster stuff. But even some of the Marvel movies I watched and I'm like... 
Oh, oh, what was that one? Like Iron Man 2. I, I literally, I know I watched it. I don't remember a fucking thing <laughs> except that Mickey Rourke has a bad Russian accent. I don't remember a second of that film. Not even a second of it. Interesting. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that that's an a example of a bad movie because I don't, I don't know. But what I'm saying is there are a lot of these movies that they, they don't carry with us. They're enough to get us through the two hours, but they, they don't affect... Like for me, I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but like, you know, like in, um, in Goodreads, uh, there's five star system. And then uh, some other, I think iTunes, I mean, um, I think Netflix before they went to the thumbs up, thumbs down, used to have a five star system too. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. So everybody had their definitions of what each star meant, right? So my stars were, you could never give me anything with zero in either of them. So one was this sucked. You know, like I turned it off. Two was, it was shitty, but there were a few things about it that were redeemable. You know, like maybe there was one scene that made me laugh. Three was, it was good. Like literally if I watched it and somebody said, how was that? It's like, it was good. That's a three. Four was, wow, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching that. But five, five was that moved me emotionally and probably changed who I am. And that's how I, and that's, that's, that's how I think about what we're lacking. We're lacking enough of those. We have a lot of fours, but how many fives do we have? How many eight and a halves by Fellini do we have? What is, what is the quintessential five to you? Eight and a half by Fellini. Ugh, what a brutal movie. It is actually, technically, I will say this, um, the reason it's specifically a five is because of the movie that he made after it, which is Juliet of the Spirits. Mm-hmm. If you watch both of those movies together, five, hands down. Eight and a half is probably a five on its own anyways, but um, for those who don't know, generally the basic, it's kind of hard to give the plots of these movies because they're complicated. Um, but Eight and a Half is essentially about a famous director who's making a new film, but he has no idea what the fuck the movie's about. He's just had a complete and utter creative block. He's also a total philanderer, cheating on his wife. He's in an affair. He's obsessed with women. Um, and then Juliet of the Spirits, they're, they're not the same characters, not connected in any way. But Juliet and the Spirits, in a way, is a response to that movie because it's about a woman who finds the strength to leave her cheating husband. Yep. So the, the depth that those two things together just oh my god um but dodes kaden by by akira kurosawa you know most of the things i would put on that list would probably be foreign films um eternal sunshine is an american film and i would put that on there oh you know my quintessential example of it i still think it's the best performances by both of these actors but awakenings Oh, great film. Great oh, film. I need to watch that, that again, a, actually. That was a hard movie to watch. I, I will tell you now. Like, that was the first time I experienced a movie bringing me to tears. I have, I have trouble. Yeah, if a movie makes me weep, it's automatically a five. Yeah, I mean, that movie, I lost my shit during that movie. I will tell you that right now. I mean, some of those scenes, I mean, just thinking about them now, I kind of well up a little bit. I mean, it was the first time that, that I realized that a movie could move me like that. You know, because I mean, you know, going up and growing, going through school and watching... Being, being the little elitist punk artist I was, you know, I'd watch all the Kurosawa stuff and all the Kubrick stuff and, you know, all the, the, the Cronenberg stuff and be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool and 
whatever the hell. But I, I, I realized that I, it was just all pretense and bullshit and that I didn't really quite understand what, what, what art and 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 art that could move you really meant until I watched Awakenings. You know, it's not a, a cinema. It's it, you know the cinematography isn't spectacular. It isn't. Um, it just happens to be an incredibly well paced, very humane, incredibly empathetic, and extremely well performed movie. I mean, Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. For whatever you may think of them, I I still think to this day that it's both of their best performances, and that movie. I watch it probably once every five years or so, and every single time it it crushes me. It absolutely crushes me. It's funny that you you uh, saw a scene like Kurosawa and those things as being elitist. I knew nobody that was interested in any of that shit. So for me, being interested in those things, it was like punk rock. Yeah, sure. No, it's I was like, I'm idea. watching this shit that nobody fucking cares about, but I'm totally into this. There was no pretension for me about it at all. Oh, dude, I, I grew up in the ghetto, man. Don't don't get me wrong. Like, I totally feel you. Like, I was the only guy in the world watching Wong Kar Wai and Chris Doyle at 17. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, people are like, who the hell is that? <laughs> but 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 I felt I felt a power in that for myself. You know, it helped me to define my own personal identity until I realized that I was associating too much of who I was with what I watched. And and the real way to to really be what those things meant to me was to be myself as an artist. And I didn't realize that. I mean, don't get me wrong, it wasn't just Awakenings that did that. There were a couple of other things, like a few artists out there that kind of did it for me as well. Um, a few comic books like Sandman. And that was the era in which I discovered Neil Gaiman as well. Um, and Neil definitely helped to push me towards that 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 more enlightened sense of self. Um, but yeah, I mean, Awakenings was definitely my my first really pure masterclass in a moving piece of cinema. And it's funny. It would, this seems everything in this episode seems to be looping back to something we said earlier. Maybe that's <laughs> a sign that we're really really in a good space right here. But that makes me think a lot about. It makes me realize actually a lot about what the problem, another problem with social media is. Um, when you are, when we were younger, when, you know, before this stuff existed, stumbling across this stuff, you know, like the way I would find these things, and I'm sure it was the same for you, is I'd be reading something. And then I was the kind of person that would be like, I still am. What's that thing that they mentioned there? You oh, know? yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like, um, for example, I, I used to get all these guitar magazines, right? I, was guitar World magazines. I would buy all these Guitar World magazines because I was I wanted to play these riffs and all these guitars. You know, they had the guitar tab in them, but then I would read the articles. And one of them had like um, I probably still have it to be honest because I saved all those. Um, it was something like albums, the album that changed your life, or something like that. You know, like the. That. The first album that, you know, diverted you on your own path, essentially. But it wasn't worded that eloquently. Um, not that that was super eloquent, <laughs> but we're talking <laughs> about a guitar magazine, so come on. Um, and, you know, like uh, like James Hepfield from Metallica mentioned like this Christian metal band. That was like the first thing he heard. He heard and then that led him into metal and all these things. So I was like, I, I, I knew nothing. You know, I had no context. Um, my mother um, listened to the same music that her parents listened to. So she missed like the sixties and all that stuff. She was still back in Sinatra and, you know, Connie Francis and stuff like that. Um, 
So I, I didn't even have a jumping point, jumping off point of um, my parents' music, right? And my dad listened to country music, so that was just no good. Um, <laughs> so I, I, the only way that I could find these things, we moved a lot, so I didn't have like a core group of friends to pull the stuff. I had to do research. Um, so I would write these when I that, that specific issue. I write down the ones that sounded interesting, and one of them was uh, Dave Matthews, and it was um, Blue Valentine by Tom Waits. First time I ever heard Tom Waits was because of Dave Matthews. Oh man, that's a weird one. Yeah, so forever I will give Dave Matthews credit for that um, wow. because my favorite musician of all time is Tom Waits. I res- I respect Dave Matthews. I can't stand his music. Yeah, well, then I can. I like some of it. It's, I mean, it's not like my favorite. There, but I, there's like six songs total. Sorry, carry on. I can't remember why I started talking about that though. Oh, social media. Um, <laughs> so when we when we were back then, that's how you had to do things. There was no fucking internet to do search, you know, like cool albums, you know, you couldn't go to pitchfork and, you know, listen to all the shit that everybody else says is hip and is cool. Um, you know, you couldn't go to Rolling Stone. Well, you could go get the magazine, which is what I did, but you had to go get, you had to do research. You had to find these things and not just at your computer because you didn't have a fucking computer. Oh man. But you would find pieces and you'd find fragments and you'd follow those fragments and you'd follow them, you know, like the Tom Waits would lead you to, you know, uh, Howlin' Wolf. And then, you know, then you'd be like in this new world because you followed this breadcrumb trail. But with social media, what happens is we don't live in that anymore. Sure. Um, um, which in some ways, uh, this actually applies to Google as well. We all listen to and watch and look at and read the same fucking shit that everybody else is looking at and reading. And, and I'm not talking about like silos and posts, but I mean like we're all watching the same fucking movies. We're all you know, like, we don't have this, I'm lost in my own little world anymore. No, there's just one big uncomplicated world. <laughs> and, and, and in some ways it's very good that we're more connected um, except that the connections that we have on those things are shit. Um, there's just people... Uh, it, I heard somebody describe it as it's, it's just a bunch of pu- fucking people um, standing in a room and one person screams and then somebody else wants to say something. They realize, well, if anybody's going to hear me, I have to scream too. And then before you know it, everybody's screaming. And then it, to scream means nothing. And nobody so, hears anybody. Yeah, sure. So we're all... Po- and it's not even that when We're all posting super extreme things because we're screaming. Because the more extreme thing is what gets the attention. Sure. You, know, you say something awful about the, the, this politician, you're going to get more retweets and you get get more likes than if you say, oh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I feel about that, dude. Nobody wants sure. to hear that you don't know. Um, that's what we tell ourselves, right? So we, we lose this... We lose this sense of, of identity. And it's it's really like I think that's what I've been feeling in the last week is that that sense of identity coming back. You know, like what I used to love to do is I used to just like love to grab like five or six books and just like flip through them all together and just finding little pieces, not doing anything with them, but just literally just thinking about it. Like, what's that? Oh, mean? oh that's interesting. That reminds me of this. I had no purpose other than I just wanted to do it. It was an entertainment. To feed my brain was entertainment. And, you know, I, I feel like there was a process to it then, too. Like, I, I think about how and why I found um, 
I, I found awakenings and I think about the rabbit hole that, that took me to it. You know, it, it's funny that you say that because yeah, I remember that entire process and it wasn't specifically for awakenings. It was, it was just Robin Williams playing serious roles because I discovered his comedy and he was hilarious to me. But then I saw, I forget which the first one was, but then I, I got on this rabbit hole of um, Dead Poet Society then The Fisher King, then Awakenings, all of which are fantastic fucking movies, by the way. Um, but but there was there was a tangible sense of of journey to that for me, and it and I feel like I learned a lot about myself as an artist and a person by just having gone through that journey. And I feel like these days I could just pull all three of them up on Netflix and watch them all in a day, and and that journey's gone, you know. Right. And it's the easy accessibility is a problem and then there's also this from a creative standpoint i wrote a journal about this but i, th- I think it, um i'm curious about your input on this so think about this I've, I've always told you when we talked about writing that i hate showing i don't like writers groups i hate showing shit until it's pretty much done sure i don't want anybody to see it because i don't want feedback right i want yeah. to be able to, to to make whatever i make even if i get to the end and it sucks at least I made what was in my mind, right? I completed what was in my mind. Sure. And when you get feedback too early, you never complete what's in your mind because this person says something, so now you turn, you turn left. And then this person says something, now you turn right. And you're just darting all over the place and you don't actually have a clear image of what you're doing. Social media is literally inviting 50,000 people or whatever, thousands of people to stand behind you while you write. And to tell you what you think, what they think about every word as you type every word, you'll never get anything done. Oh, it's exhausting. too much. It's too much feedback. We're not meant for that much feedback. Geez, I think about my writing days, especially when I'm writing something brutal like poetry, where I'm I'm sitting there thinking about a word for ten minutes, and how excruciating that experience would be if ten of my favorite people much less 10 random strangers were in the room criticizing what I was thinking of. Imagine if it wasn't even 10. Imagine if it was just me. And yeah, how about, how about this word? How about this word? Neck. How about this word? How about this I word? Literally, I would literally punch you in the neck or I would, I would just do... Uh, it, it, I, we would just do something else because there's no way that I could do that in the moment. Right. And that's, that's literally how we're... I mean, that's how we're trying to run our society now is everybody feed, giving feedback, 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 feedback all the fucking time. And we're overloading on feedback because we're not making any progress. Mm. We're just, we're losing our fucking minds. We got to, you know, like that's one of the things that they did right with the Ready Player. I haven't read the book. Like I said, they did right with the movie was the message had something that we could carry away, which was, Sometimes you just got to turn the shit off and walk away. Sure. And you and we don't do enough of that. You know, like I, I can tell you that having stopped reading any social media, I don't miss it. You know, like I don't have uh, comments on my blog, like I've said before, because I don't give a fuck. I don't care what people think about what I'm writing there. They want to read it. It's there. I'm not there for a conversation. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to be online for a conversation either. Why, like, why do I need to have conversation with strangers? If I want to have a, a good conversation, I'll go and I'll meet somebody sure. and, and have a conversation there, uh, a place where nuance works, where I don't have a f- 140 characters to fuck up or 280. 
I, I like the a, a place where nuance works, Link, because that is that is the one thing that you absolutely lose in, in social media instantaneously the moment you even participate. Even people who are good at it, nuance is gone. Nuance, right. as you understand it, is, is as a human being, the, the the tools that you've developed your entire life to recognize, understand, and act upon nuance are completely useless in social media. And you're also, I mean, you're 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 addicted to it too. So you're doing like um like Lanier, um, he compares it to um, gambling addiction, you know, because there's not really a substance involved. Um, but one of the things that he says, he's not like you're. If, for example, he talks about Trump. He's met Trump a few times, um, and he says he, you know, he's he, a lot of parts of his personality were always this way. He was always kind of a a confidence man. He was always kind of you know like uh, egotistical and boasty. He said, but he got the feeling in the meetings that the guy actually used to be fairly happy. That he used to smile a lot and he wasn't cranky. And, and he says he thinks that the reason he became what he is now, the way that he is now, where he's always, you know, people were always attacking him and there's a witch hunt and all this stuff is because of Twitter. Huh. And he says that he believes that social media, the true addiction to social media is the misery. So we're, we're all addicted to the negative feedback. That well, that's, is, that's horrifying. <laughs> and it's also, it's horrifying because the more you think about it, you're like, holy shit. Yeah, no, that's, true. That's, that's what I mean. Like, and I think I'm a pretty conscious, present human being. And like, I'm thinking of examples in which I've done that too. Like where I sit around and I'll, I'll bitch about something with somebody that I saw on social media. And yeah, you, you find comfort in the, the, the shared misery of it. The, 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 also the problem too is in work, when we're on social media, you know, like we're always on, quote, quote, unquote, we're always on. But we're always continually affirming identity. Sure. This, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I believe. Retweet, retweet. I believe this, you know, but we're not spending enough time actually figuring out what we actually believe. We're really sure. convinced that we know what we believe, but we don't. You know, like, for example, I'll give you, we, we don't have to actually go into what we think about this, but I'll give you a, a complex issue uh, that uh, Northam, the, the Democratic governor, yep. he's, in, he's in a yearbook, um, might be in blackface, might be in the picture next to the person in blackface. Um, and then there's someone else dressed up in a Ku Klux Klan hood. Like it's a, it's a high school yearbook, I think, right? High school yeah, yearbook so, yeah. or, or college yearbook. Um, yeah. And now everybody wants him to resign. Okay. Anybody tells me that they know what they think about that, they don't. Because that 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 whole issue is it's it's far more complex than just like he's a racist. Because it's we don't know he's a racist. I mean, first of all, uh, he's a Democrat, so he'd be a really weird racist. <laughs> Just choose to be a Democrat. <laughs> um, so, the f- first of all, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as racist Democrats. Like all the Democrats in the South used to be all racists. I mean, that's that's where the Ku Klux Klan essentially came from. Um, sure. But now it's a little bit different. <laughs> hopefully. Sure. Um, so that's it. Would be a weird choice, but even there, you know, it's a little complexity. It could be one way. It could be the other. I'm not positive. I'm not right necessarily. But um, you're looking at a similar situation to the Kavanaugh thing that we talked about before, which is 
we think we know this. We're not sure what we know because we don't have a lot of actual evidence. We have this picture. Is that him in it? He doesn't even know if that's him in it. You know, like you can't really tell. Um, so we can't say for positive. Sure. But we've decided this and we've decided this, you know, like, so this is something that happened in the past. This is who you are now. Does this define this? I don't know. It's complex. And and, and for everybody to be reacting and, and assuming and all these things, it means they haven't sat and thought about what that means. What does it mean? You know, like who I was at 17. I wouldn't want to today be responsible for anything that came out of that guy's mouth. <laughs> and that's just words. You know, like... It, how many times as men we've been in, if you, if you, somebody, if somehow somebody had a recording of our whole lives, it'd be really easy to go and find situations that you can take and go, you're a piece of shit. Cause how many times as you're, you're a man growing up, um, hopefully this isn't so much true now, but at least in my generation, your generation and before you end up in situations where people are saying really nasty things about women. And as a younger man, you join in, even though maybe you're a virgin. <laughs> Why? Because you're trying to belong. Um, does that mean that's what you believe then? No. Does it mean it's good to say those things? Absolutely not. Does that mean that's who you are 30 years later? No. Of course not. But when we take part in this public discourse, which is not even a discourse... It's like a yelling match, this public yelling match. We're not actually... I, I, like, I like your idea of public shaming. That's exactly what this is. Yeah, that, that, that book. Oh, my God. So, that book is so powerful. Um, but yeah, it's basically the sense of we're, we're a mob. When we're on social media, we're a mob. And yeah. we put people in stockades and we throw rotten vegetables at their face. Um, it's not good. Um, it's not good just because of that, you know, that's cruel and all that. It's also not good because we're not doing the things that we need to do to improve society and to move society forward, which is sitting and thinking about really complex shit. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean that somebody did something 30 years ago that might or might not be really fucked up? What does that mean? And how do we as a society move... Uh, like? Just reacting is not thinking. Yeah, sure. Like, do we change our, our perceptions of, of time and, and, and responsibility? And, and how much does the societal um, construct of who that person was at the time, like, was that acceptable at the time, you know? And if it was, then, then how can we possibly hope to hold today's moral lens to a time in which the morality was very, very different? Right. I mean, if, if, if we're responsible for everything, you know, like if we're, if we're responsible for everything we did 30, 40 years ago, and, and that's never going to change, then guess what? We might as well just start executing everyone. Yeah, because we sure. can't have, there's no reform in prison anymore because now we believe that that person can never become better. That that guy who was in the, uh, that neo-Nazi, you know, that now is not a neo-Nazi that actually gives speeches, uh, anti racist speeches that talks about how horrible living in that world was he's in in our worldview then he's always going to be a nazi 
I, I, I actually hope that at some point one of those guys actually, not, I'm not assuming it's a guy, I'm not assuming it's a racist that's inherently white, but I, I, I just want to say, like, I want one of those people who's accused of one of those things to come out and say, yes, I was that, and I'm not anymore. And I'm not going to apologize for being what I was because that's who I was in that moment. All I can do is hope to be a better person each and every day that I walk this earth. And that's got to be good enough for me, and it's got to be good enough for everybody else because otherwise we should just call it quits right now. You know, I I can't believe I'm going to say this and you're not going to want to hear it. Somebody did do that. Who? Donald Trump. Oh, God. When the grab him by the pussy thing, that's almost exactly what he said. Uh, yeah, you're right. You know what, though? If if Trump... Oh, God. Man, the number of people who are going to get hate on for this episode if they ever listen to this. If, if, if he actually turned it around right now and did a fantastic job from this point forward, I would, I would actually kind of be okay with it. Well, of course, you should. Because if he turned it around and started doing things for the better of people, anybody that begrudged somebody that was actually doing better for people would be a fucking idiot. Who cares who's doing it? Or or in in better terms, a self-righteous asshole. If I was drowning and Donald Trump was the only person willing to give me a hand and pull me out of the water, you'd tell me I'm going to tell him to fuck off? No, I'm going to grab his hand. Yeah, you're going to grab his hand because you're not an idiot. (laughs) And that's the same way. That's that's the problem with politics in this country right now is we care about who's doing things. We don't care about what's being done. Sure. We need this whole party identity. You know, I'm on the left, you're on the right, blah, blah, blah. Um, All this shit, it needs to be thrown away. Because when those people, you know, when you get elected to Congress and you go in that room, you know what you'd be thinking about is America not your fucking party. And if you're thinking about your party, get the fuck out of that chair. Yeah, you don't deserve it. I mean, it's one of the things that I consistently say about politics these days, right? Like, if you need it, then you shouldn't be doing it. Exactly. And and the reason why I I say that with such fervor these days is because there are so many people who wrap up their identities into these parties. Like, you know, I think about some of the senators that I have huge problems with, like Lindsey Graham's a good example of this, right? He was a huge critic of, of Trump before Trump became president. And after Trump became president, he became Trump's biggest defender on the Senate floor. What the shit? That is so no. That is, that is the the lack of sincerity there is so so rife and, and obvious that it's sickening. Like it makes me think differently about all politicians, and it's unfortunate because I assume that you know, and and I know quite a few politicians, like people who hold actual public office, and I can tell you with certainty this thing, which is. Nobody gets into public office to do harm or bad. Right. But the ones that end up doing harm are the ones that need it. Because, the, the, because at some point, the most important thing is not the people or the, or the country or, or, or the culture, but re-election. Well, and to go back to what we said before, the ones who end up doing the worst are the ones who think they can change the world. The ones have the utopian view. The ones who aren't willing to do the work and understand it's always going to be complex and it's always going to be difficult, and that's the job. They want to be the hero. Uh, I mean, it got, we're, we're going to wrap this episode into all kinds of other things we've talked about. So Ian McKellen again. Let's go back to Gandalf. Oh, okay. Hold on. I wanted, Before we leave the redemption thing, there is something I want to say. Last week when I went on my little tangent, I did <laughs> say one sentence. I don't uh, regret anything. I, th- I believe almost everything I said there, but there's one sentence I said that I do not agree with. 
I, I, for some reason, I just got wrapped up in it. And I said that Kathy Griffin is completely unredeemable as a human being. I don't mean that. I don't think anybody is unredeemable as a human being. That was just getting carried away. I, I want to clear that up. I think she's currently horrible, though. <laughs> oh, it doesn't mean I like her. I think she's still a stupid fucking idiot for the things that she said. But um, I don't think she's unredeemable. That's sure. not something I ever want to say about anyone and mean. And see, that, that's a really good example of nuance. If, if, oh, yeah, sure. if I had said that on Twitter and it got retweeted, I would have never had the chance to say, by the way, that's not actually what I meant. But I, I, I just got carried away. I don't want to ever say that about a person. But if that just that one sentence got tweeted and now it's just continually spinning fucking out there ever repeating like that joke about AIDS in Africa that was only meant for 170 people and somehow the whole fucking world saw it. And they saw it without context, sure. And when you read that book, oh my God, these you, you have no idea how, how that woman's life was ruined. Destroyed. Well, I can imagine, considering what we're doing with other people who have done similar things, sure. There's another girl in the book who, um, she, her and her friend went on like a, I don't even think this girl had social media of her own. Um, her and her friend went like on a East Coast tour or something like that, and one of they so they were just kind of like a, taking these like kind of snarky photos. Excuse me, like a, in front of a sign that said "No smoking." They were smoking a cigarette, you know, just like that kind of stuff, you know, kid stuff. You're like, yeah. uh-huh. well, we're rebelling. Um, so then they're at Arlington Cemetery, and there's a sign that says. Um, uh, quiet and respect or something like that. Um, and she's pretending like she's yelling and then flipping off the sign. So uh, it says quiet, she's pretending to be loud. It says respect, she's being disrespectful. Okay. Sure. That got same thing, blown up across the world. Girl's life destroyed. Um, didn't even have her own social media. It was on somebody else's. And she's, uh, the, the person asked her, you know, like, can I post this? She's like, yeah, of course, because she didn't think it was anything just that's funny, you know, like we're just being funny, of course. Sure. Um, and, I mean, and we're talking like years later, like she couldn't get jobs um, because everybody knew her name. Um, and, and this is a girl who worked with autistic children. Oh my God. Um, so she finally got a job um, working with autistic children. And she, every day she go to work terrified that one day that somebody was going to find her at work in a Google search. And lose her job again. That's terrible. That's wrong. People need... We, we can't continue like that. It's just disgusting. It's just... That's why I don't want anything to do with it, Lim. Because it's like being part of the mob. Even if you think you're doing good, you're still in the mob. You're still carrying a torch. Yeah, that's true. Even if you're carrying a torch in the back, you're still carrying a damn torch. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's uh, like uh, like those kids. You know, like uh, you know, like five five teenagers uh, convicted of of raping a woman, um, and one of them was like, "I just stood there." Well, guess what? You're still going to jail. Yeah, because you fucking stood there and you didn't do anything. You're just you're just culpable. Yeah, and um, we're all culpable in social media every time we sign on. Yeah. So basically, if 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 you open up a social media account, you 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 officially okay yourself to be part of the mob. Yeah. Awful. Yeah, that's that's horrifying. 
What what book is that in? I I really want to read this now. So you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson. It's actually um actually that reminds me of something I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm doing, I wanted to tell you I've been doing some interesting things with the website. Um, so I had this idea. I'm kind of because I'm not doing the social media. I had this idea of like, well, I have the newsletter. What if like every day I'm just like I find and maybe it's not every day, but almost every day, I'm sending out something different, something interesting every time. You know, like so I had the journal. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stick to doing that journal, the typewriter journal, once a week. Yeah, and then. Um, I'm still, you know, I still, like I said last week, I still have the social media apps and, you know, I'm posting links of things there through a third party. I'm using Buffer um, so that I don't have to sign into them for the people that are still there. But for the people that maybe don't want to or, you know, don't want to actually sift through their feed for that, on Sundays, I'm sending all of those links in one email. Like, here's the roundup. And then um, on Saturdays, I want to do a sketch and just send, here's a sketch, you know. You don't have to be on Instagram to see the sketch. And then the episodes, when the episodes come out, um, on Mondays, you get the email for this show. And on Thursdays, I think, you get the email for the Creative Minds show. And then I've been doing... uh, I found a form of the book club that I want to do. Instead of trying to organize a book club like the many, many I've tried before, I'm literally just putting up a book every week and recommending a book. And then if people want to read it, they read it and they can go start their own book club. I'm just huh. giving them a list. And so the first book I put up is, so you've been publicly shamed. And by the way, all this stuff is not only available in the newsletter. It's also on the website. Everything that goes on the website, you get an email about. I just think that seems, that seems really fun. And Yeah, that's, that seems pretty enjoyable. I, plus, you know what I, 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 I kind of like about that is that it forces in... It, not like I, I like to preach or force people to do anything, but I... I, I like that it creates the journey that we're talking about here for when we were looking for things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like it's almost like a shared scavenger hunt. <laughs> I'm just throwing out crumbs, and then you know whatever, and then on articles and stuff like that. I want to start writing some articles because now, without my head and all that shit, I'm going to start having thoughts again. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what I really want to do, and I'm not, this I'm scared to actually announce this, so I'm not going to say this is official. I'm going to try it, but I'm actually a little terrified to try this. Um, uh, for premium members, I want to do book responses. Um, so a book response is not a review because I'm not trying to get you to buy a book. So uh, to clarify, the book club, the book club one, all it does is I give like two or three sentences at the top why I think the book is interesting. The actual official description of the book, you see the picture, the cover of the book, one quote that I think is a really good quote from the book, and then a link to buy the book. Done. Straightforward. Um, But the book responses, what I want to do is I want to take a book and actually respond to the idea in the book and write something about it. You know, like if I, for example, I'm reading a book right now about, um, it's called How Dogs Love. Um, And it's about this guy who was a, he is a neuroscientist, I think. Um, I'm, I'm the reason I'm questioning that is I'm not sure what his actual degree is. But he does, um, in this book, he learns how to scan the dogs of brains in an MRI, an fMRI, um, because he's trying to understand how the reward center of a dog's brain works and if it's similar to humans. Because um, the assumption is 
Um, so far, there have only been two theories on how dogs work. People either think of them that they work the way humans work, or they have the wolf mentality, which is you know alpha and the beta. And there's actually no scientific evidence for either of those theories. So he wanted to scan the dog's brain to really understand the the, the center of the brain and to understand like, do dogs love us? Um, so like, for example, if I get to the end of that book and he presents this theory of, of dogs, maybe that dogs love us, then I would want to write a response to that. I would say, here's here's I'm thinking about this. You know, maybe this, uh, because if dogs love us, then maybe this is the implication of that. And, you know, maybe this is the moral implication of that. To like take that as a jumping off point and see where it takes my mind. Huh. And Interesting. It's, it's, I don't know, it's just really, it's, it's scary because I've never done anything like that before and that's a big thing. I can't say I've ever even read anything that resembles that. Um, I think... Like I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever read a book response before. <laughs> I mean, I've read reviews and things like that, obviously, but I feel like a response is entirely different. Well, I think originally criticism, that's what criticism originally was. Sure. Criticism has now become product review. Um, yeah, there's sure. not a lot of actual criticism. Criticism is about the ideas in a book. Um, you know, like you go to like um, um, New York Times, no, not New York Times, um, The New Yorker, you'll find stuff like this when they write about books. Sure. Um, yeah, there's, there's um, where did I, was it the John Ronson one? I just read a really good one. Um, this guy was right. He wrote this review and I was like, wow, this guy is fucking good. Um, but anyways, it wasn't a review review. It was more of a response. It was a criticism. And by the way, for anybody listening, criticism isn't always negative. <laughs> yeah. It has bad connotation, but it doesn't inherently have to be a negative, yeah? Right. It just means you're critically thinking. That's where it comes from. Critical thinking. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, of, of you know, my, my critiques in, in all of my art and photography and writing classes. Um, I feel like I had a good experience through that, but that kids don't have these days anymore. Uh, when I say stuff like that, it makes me sound like I'm a million years old. <laughs> but I feel like, but I feel like criticism didn't have a negative stigma to it yet. Well, um, it hadn't been marketed yet. Yeah, that's true. You know, I think about my old Rolling Stones um, magazines. I used to have volumes of that stuff. You know, Raygun, same thing. Like all of these these magazines where I used to read read actual critiques that were fantastic. And I, I don't was the shit. Uh, Reagan was amazing on some. Don't even get me started on Reagan. Reagan defined my aesthetic sensibility pretty much until now. You know, that's um, the guy who created nylon, right? Uh, was it really? Yeah, he did. That's what he did next. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, but but the the cover artist um, uh, Dave Carson was the guy who kind of designed or who made me understood what design could be. Yeah. Um, and it was my first experience of that early on. And plus some of my favorite artists to this day, like I think I discovered Bjork through Raygun. I discovered Nine Inch Nails through Raygun um, and I, probably a host of others. Um, but I remember reading articles about music that were not necessarily just about the music itself, but how and why the music was important for what it was trying to represent. Just things like that. Um, and it was so different than 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 what we we see now in these these critiques, right? You're so right. Like everything that we read now is is a product review. We might as well give everything stars. And I think yeah. most of the time we actually do. <laughs> it's basically it's like, should I buy this? Yeah, it's it's a world of Yelp now. Everything is Yelp. 
That's the other thing I fucking hate is they all review shit before you can buy it. Uh, it's annoying. Yeah, sure. I don't think you should be able to review something until it's for sale for everyone. Sure. You know, like, oh, this book is really good. You'll be able to buy that in four months. Fuck you. I'm not going to remember that. Yeah. Or, oh. or even worse, even worse, this book is really, and, and I think there, there's no more qualifier to that because there's, there's, there's an elitism, elitism to it, which is this book is, is not very good to me. Yeah. That's, that's never a sentence that's included in that. It's just huh. my, my opinion is the end all be all. And this is truth, not opinion. <laughs> well, not to mention the big problem with these, with this um, review thing is they're not spending that much time with these things. You know, like they get the album, maybe they listen to it twice. Yeah. I can tell you there are a lot of albums that I love, but if I had to do that, I would have given really bad reviews to because I didn't get it till like the 10th time I listened to it. Agreed. Like there are plenty, pretty much there, every Radiohead album. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to mention that. Like Kid A, the first time I listened to it, I'm like, what the hell is this crap? Now yep. it's one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, Tom Waits. But, but it took like a million listens. Yeah, Tom Waits, definitely. Tom Waits is jarring when you first hear him. <laughs> um, in, in the, I appreciate Tom Waits in the same way I appreciate Scotch. Um, in that when I was younger, I, I, I thought it was overrated and stupid. And that it was just a, something that, that elitist, pretentious people did to make them feel superior to other people. Um, and now I understand why Scotch is better, like I understand why Tom Waits is just better. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right, should we shoot this one in the foot? Yeah, let's kill it with Tom Waits. All right, guys, um, fuck social media. <laughs> uh, yeah. Go to holyfoolproductions.com or thevacantroom.com, which is Lamb's website. Yep. And that's yeah. it. Don't go anywhere else. Screw the yeah. social media thing. You know what's funny? Of the, just quickly on social media too is I'm drifting so far. Like I actually had the thought today of deleting my Instagram, or not my Instagram, but my Facebook account entirely. It's, it serves no purpose except in, uh, if you want to feed data to a large corporation for free. If I didn't have businesses to run through it, I would, I would literally delete it. I, 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 I don't think I've actually posted anything personally on Facebook in over a year. Yeah, I don't go on any of them anymore. I haven't been on Facebook forever. Yeah. Um, ever since I went back, which was fine at first, but then it just, it, no, it's not for me. I'm not yeah. that person. I'm not a social media person. I don't think I ever have been. I've always gone through these phases where it's like, fine, I'm doing it. And then I, I revolt. You know, how many times have I deleted accounts? Oh, you every six months you did that. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of deleting them, I'm just leaving them up and robotizing them. Is that a word? Robotizing? Or is it, robotizing. That's like robotussing. I feel like even if it isn't, we should make it one. So solid robotizing all right guys um any words of wisdom do we have anything interesting we want to say and hey, blow up your social media <laughs> um go find a movie that makes you cry yeah go cry that's a good one and don't tweet about it tell yeah. somebody to their face or better yet here's the better way watch a movie with someone and cry together yeah and snuggle oh um, I'm going to snuggle with my dog. I wish I had a dog. Don't even get me started. Ah!